All of a sudden, it's March, a bright, sunshiny day down the University of Montana campus. Crazy to think that we're already into March, but uh, happy to be here. We're down here at Studio 49 at the Gallagher Business Building here with Justin Engel, University of Montana business professor. He comes to us a couple times a month here on the Business Angle, presented by Blackfoot Communications. Uh, first thing I want to ask you, man, I just saw a university van down in the uh, parking lot here, and okay. there's like the kind of the new color schemes. Yeah. This has been an interesting deal because... I think people that are involved in the university or that get uh, materials from the university, like I still get the alumni magazine and I get various things for GSA, Grizzly Scholarship Association, all that as an alum. Um, But it hasn't been like this full-fledged, here we are, we're changing our colors because they haven't changed the colors fully. So just take us through this, just from sort of a marketing and branding standpoint. Yeah, so when Jenny Petty, our new VP of Marketing and Communications, came on board whenever, a year and a half ago, uh, she engaged in what's called a brand refresh. So you're not like totally doing a total new rebrand. We keep the basic logo, the basic colorway, but just kind of updating and codifying a set of standards for how we portray the brand. That is the University of Montana kind of in all places. So syncing up our web materials, syncing up our print materials, uh, adding a new feel that appeals to the the real customer here, which is the student, right? We're trying to attract more students. And and so I was on a, a... a committee that kind of evaluated some of the proposals and, and provided some input. And, um, you know, we got the proposals and I really liked this one that we went with because it was the one that made people feel most uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if, if all of us gray hairs feel uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing. Sure. It probably means that it's, it's targeted for somebody else, not us. And that's what we want, right? We want to, we want the brand to appeal to students. This is so funny because I remember when I was a kid when the Grizzlies won the 1995 National Championship and then the next year they changed the colors. Yeah. And that was uh, quite a point of contention in in Missoula, right? I mean, people had loved the copper and gold. and I mean, Montana's the treasure state. We have such a history in mining and minerals and industry and and all these things. And those colors are just sweet. I mean, they're, they're just sweet. They looked great. And then people hated the maroon and silver. Yeah. But now here we are, and that's been the, the, the sports colors for 26, 27 years. And, and I think it, it would be a similar reaction no matter what you change the colors to. So it is kind of interesting. Yeah, people don't like new stuff generally. <laughs> but then they do like new and stuff. And then they do. It's, it's, <laughs> it's at a core level, it's called the mere exposure effect. The more, <laughs> right. the more repetitions you get being exposed to something, the more you tend to like it. Well, it's like the Missoula Osprey, right? The, it was like a widely disliked change to the Missoula sure. Battleheads. Yeah. Yet the Missoula Paddleheads sold more memorabilia than any minor league baseball team in the entire Western United States. So I don't like the change from the Osprey, but the Paddleheads gear is pretty cool. I'm going to buy some of it. So, you know, it's, it, to me, it just seems like good business. Yeah, well, with the Paddleheads, there's probably a bit of a market effect there. Sure. Like the appeal of the Paddleheads and and so forth is probably driven outside of the Missoula community a little bit more than just in Missoula. Because, you know, people around, people like with these minor league teams, the novelty of That's right. weird logos and weird mascots and so i think that had some of the appeal that paddleheads is a little bit different than osprey and people want something unique there's also 
a differentiation. I don't even know if you know much about this, but there's like the school's colors and then there's the spirit colors, and those are two different things. I never really knew about that. So like technically they say the University of Montana never actually changed their school colors. Okay. They just changed their spirit colors. Sure, right. Which so then that gives you multiple options to change. I don't know. It's uh, it's, it's all interesting. I guess. I mean, you categorize it however you want, but but back to your original question, it is whatever your brand is, it is important for you to have a set of standards that um, dictate how you put that brand into the marketplace and, and how you represent yourself. If you're inconsistent or kind of all over the place, if nobody knows what to expect, they don't really have know what to expect of your brand. And that, that's a problem. You need consistency. One other here and now question I wanted to ask you. The Grizz basketball game last Thursday against Portland State was postponed and then eventually called off. We could have a full discussion about the call off. That's way more of a sports discussion, though. You know, you could get into the weeds just in terms of, okay, on one hand, it was not for a quote unquote seed. Everybody was going to sure. get the same place. But on the other hand, Montana State and Eastern Washington are the two best teams in the conference. They played on Monday, not for a seed. Both teams were locked into what they did, and they played a great college basketball game. That's the spirit of competition, right? But I wanted to ask you from a business and, and sort of revenue perspective, that's sort of a, a tough deal for Montana because they have a, a team in Portland State that's pretty familiar to the fan base. Portland State's best player, Cam Parker, played here at the University of Montana, so that's yep. going to sell you a couple extra tickets. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of seeing the, the guy come back to play the Grizz. And uh, also the Grizz have been playing pretty darn good the last month or so. And so they got some momentum. And so uh, just sort of a lost revenue opportunity for Montana. I, I guess people aren't really considering the business side of this. Yeah, it, it's hard to, I mean, it's probably easy to quantify the lost sure. revenue. Um, at the same time, you know, I think you have to view it holistically. Like it, it was a weather cancellation, right? It puts the team and the coaches and all the personnel at risk to travel. Um Putting the team on the floor presents a risk to the players for injury that going into the tournament. All the all these sorts of considerations, um, you know, I think you could roll it up into a singular metric of lost revenue dollars, but I think that's a little myopic in the sense that viewing it as a loss or a gain in the grand scheme has to be a little bit more of a holistic analysis. I think. It's not definitely a, a complete break in the bank, so to speak, yeah. but uh, certainly uh, just you know incremental. But Montana will be fine. They'll, they'll figure out a way uh, to make it up, and uh, you could probably make it up by then making a run to the big dance. So that's where I want to go next. Uh, Nuana's now ESPN Radio. The Business Angle here with Justin Angle, presented by Blackfoot Communications. Visit goblackfoot.com to see how they can help you with any of your small business needs. The phenomenon of the NCAA tournament. Oh yeah, it, it's amazing to me for a variety of reasons. First of all, you sort of, you had the the rise of college basketball, and college basketball for for a really really long time was the superior product to the NBA. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. But the NCAA tournament is the premier product for basketball in America for one month at a time. And I find it fascinating that it's been able to maintain that status from John Wooden all the way now until the modern day and age. How have they been able to do it? Well, I think it's it has tremendous consistency. And we will see. This is the year where they go to an expanded, like a really dramatically expanded tournament field. Is that right? Uh, well, they're, they're thinking about it. So it, it was a 32-team tournament all the way through the 70s. Right. Then in the late, 1980, or ni- late 1970s, they expanded it to 64, and then it's expanded to 68 since then. There's also speculation that maybe they double it again someday soon. 
But I think before they ever double it again, they're just going to have a, a different ulterior tournament. Okay. You know, that that's the thing is there's payouts here through the NCAA that's sort of revenue sharing. I think the team that wins the NCAA tournament this year will get somewhere around $8.5 million. Certainly a significant number for your athletic department. But there's also a scenario here in which somebody that's a private donor or a private a conglomeration of people could come up with what? Ten times that much money for the yeah. prize? I mean, yeah. you could theoretically come up with 50 times that much money in the prize because you're talking about this tournament just in TV revenue is going to make a billion dollars. So you could totally have a hundred million dollar prize. It's just a matter of what road we go down to. But you're right. It has evolved and they've opened more doors for more teams to be able to compete. So I think the thing driving the success of the NCAA tournament is its consistency. Yes, it expanded from 32 to 64, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. But it's largely been a consistent product mm-hmm. that within that consistent product has a ton of unpredictability. That's right. Right? You've got these early rounds that, yeah. that people tune into because you might see something you don't expect and you're likely to across the totality of the games. But as the tournament progresses, you've got usually a decent number of these franchises, essentially, the Dukes, the Carolinas, that just consistently, there's enough of them that that make it deep enough into the tournament that those you know, New York Yankee-style fans will stay interested. And I think they occupy a really compelling space on the calendar, right? College football is kind of done. Mm-hmm. The NFL is done. The NBA is kind of dragging. We're post All Star break, but the sure. playoffs really haven't, you know, come into a clear picture. I'm not saying the games don't matter, but they certainly don't matter to the extent that these college games matter. And those college games, it also, and we'll talk about this in a moment. I think they, the NCAA tournament, allows the myth of the amateur athlete to persist for sure. But Particularly when you're dealing with the mid-majors going up against the big programs and maybe having upsets. So like those seem like kids that one, they seem like kids, and two, they right, seem right. like like people from our community that we can identify with, you know, the bad news bears type stories. For and sure. I think that allows there's so many on ramps to this product, yet the product is really consistent. And I think that's probably a big contributor to success. There's certainly the the time and place. Uh, the timing on the sports calendar is ideal because mm-hmm. you're right. They they do get to take center stage. Oh yeah. The fact that they do it at neutral sites and oftentimes they're at very uh, um, alluring neutral sites. Right, like I'm probably going to get sent to either Sacramento or San Diego. Yes, please. That sounds great after the, the yeah. long winter that we've had. But that brings fans from all over, too, because they can have a little vacation and also watch some basketball, right? Mm-hmm. So that's part of it as we, well. We, we have to also mention the brackets. Like, everybody likes to fill out a bracket. That's and, right. And it's like, we've talked about sports betting many times on this segment. Well, this is a form of sports betting that's been around for a long, long that's time. Right. And you don't have to be that familiar with college basketball. At you just all. have to pick universities or mascots that you like. It's <laughs> totally. so easy. It's like easier than than fantasy football or, or, or any really kind of sports gambling. It is true. The business angle here on Nuanas Now, uh, presented by Blackfoot Communications. That's, I guess, why I posed this question is that to me, the product that is men's Division One college basketball 
has regressed significantly. Mm-hmm. There's a variety of reasons for that. There's the the uh, sort of ever-moving target of, of when guys can go pro, right. the one-and-dones. There's also the influx of the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. There's very few familiar faces, you know, guys that have been around at their schools. That's why college basketball did become so popular, is you had... You know, even the Michael Jordans of the world still right. stayed in North Carolina three for years. three years. I mean, Pat, Patrick Ewing was like the prodigy of all prodigies. He mm-hmm. still played at Georgetown for his whole career before he went to the NBA, and uh, that that sort of that part has sort of regressed. Also, the game itself. I think that the athletes have gotten better, the skills gotten worse, the court hasn't gotten any bigger. They're playing an NBA style game that's not an, under NBA rules or an NBA court. Yeah. So it's way more clogged up. There's way more fouls. I mean, we see these whistle fests, but. That's all erased when the NCAA tournament starts. And I think that it, I, I don't know. I, I guess they don't even have to worry about the regression of their product as a whole because it all just gets summed up in three weeks in March, right? Well, I mean, I think in general you have to worry about it. Yeah. Uh, those sort of um, slow drip degradations that you've outlined there, yeah. they're not as obvious in the tournament. And the, in the tournament, you know, the teams are rising to the occasion. They're playing as hard as they can for those minutes. And just the raw excitement of each game, I think, blurs the kind of degradation of the style of play and those other constraints that you it's kind so of true. It's so true. It's so true. I, as somebody that analyzes this and watches it extensively, I have fully given up on watching regular season men's college basketball. It doesn't. It's not fun to me. Yeah. I can't turn on a game on a Monday or Tuesday night. First of all, I can't turn on a game and know anybody. The only guy I know is the coach. Yep. Right? Like, you got big-time programs playing. I know who the coaches are. I don't know who anybody is playing in the game. It's hard to. This guy transferred from here, and he transferred from there, and all of a sudden this guy's on school four. It's just not for me. The the way that they officiate the games, it's not for me either. But, but again, it all gets erased when they get into the NCAA tournament, and I think what you just said, you nailed it. The, just the, the, the ultimate result of it, win and move on, lose and go home. Yeah. The... Everybody everybody that's watching can say, I told you so. I, I told you Vermont was going to beat Virginia, you oh, know? Yeah. Even though you don't know a dang thing about Vermont. <laughs> the affirmation to the sports fan, that's one of the things I think is the thing that carries this all day. Vermont's the catamounts, right? Well, see, Vermont is the catamounts. And Vermont, actually, I shouldn't dog on Vermont. Vermont actually is very good as a basketball program and have won games in the NCAA tournament before. And why are they called UVM, not UVT? It's, knows, it's right? very, very, very Anyway, confusing. Vermont's a yeah, bit of a uh, outlier here. For sure. <laughs> it is, though, uh, amazing how they continue to empower sort of this core fan base. And, uh, you know, I, I would say most of the people that watch the NCAA tournament don't really watch the rest of college basketball. And it doesn't matter. All the things I'm talking about doesn't matter to them at all. They just can't wait to get their bracket and fill it out. I mean, you might equate it to the Super Bowl halftime show sure, which right, we talked about right. a few weeks ago, right? What do you? Last question on this element. What do you think is, is the future of this? I mean, do you, do you feel like they can sustain sort of this deal where the regular season has become largely irrelevant and, and it really is just, in terms of appeasing to the broadest fan base you can, it, it really is only just about a, a three or four or five week stretch. Yeah, I think they can sustain it if they resist the temptation to dramatically expand the field or change the format. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have a thing that's working, right? Mm-hmm. And it's averaged a very consistent viewership over the last 10 years. In a, mar- in, in a world where you know, a lot of sports um, viewership numbers have been going down. So I think 
it's going well. There's a temptation to mess with it. There are all these forces swimming around, and we're going to talk about one of them in a moment, that potentially undermine the power and utility of the NCAA. So I think those sort of systemic shocks or systemic risks are... um, are probably the things that the tournament needs to look out for more than trying to tinker with its format. The regular season numbers, I mean, those will sort of play out with uh, the TV deals. If those conferences and those schools can't get the uh, the numbers they've been accustomed to through TV deals for the regular season, they're going to have to look to fill that revenue elsewhere. It's going to be tempting to tinker with the tournament. Um so we'll see how it plays out. I just think that that if you start tinkering too much, you're going to undermine some of the unique assets that make the tournament so powerful. New Orleans Now, ESPN Radio, the business angle. Justin Angle joining us here from Studio 49. Appreciate everybody for tagging along and following along here. Uh, presented by Blackfoot Communications. Visit goblackfoot.com to see how Blackfoot can help you in a variety of ways. You texted me about the Cavendar twins, and this yeah. is an interesting story. One of my buddies, we were talking about this exact thing, and, and his response was, this falls under the category of the NCAA was pushed so much to investigate UCLA's cheating that they sanctioned Long Beach State. <laughs> you know, he. I guess what I'm saying is, it's for those unfamiliar, the Cavendar twins are uh, very good players at the uh, University of Miami, Miami women's basketball a good program, for sure. Both these young ladies have been standouts th- throughout their careers. They also have been uh, sort of on the forefront of name, image, and likeness deals. They are both, um, how do you say, they're both very good looking, and I think yeah. that helps. They're also, you know, in Miami, this place where you can have all this different influence. But then they were, they uh, Miami fell under sanctions because of some stuff that happened during their recruiting. Sure. I just couldn't help but laugh because of all the stuff that's gone on at Miami over the last 20 to 25 years with, I mean, stuff that would have, even in the days of NIL, there was stuff that was going on in Miami that would have been still illegal sure. because of the booster interactions and where the money was coming from and all sorts of different things. Uh, just break this down for this. What do you what do you think of just sort of this phenomenon sort of backhandedly and, and retrospectively coming down the pipe against these young ladies? Yeah, I, I don't have a deep thoughts on exactly why the NCAA chose to go after these two young ladies for what appears to be a pretty minor infraction. It's like the coach who was recruiting them brought a booster to the dinner or something like that. But what I think we're seeing here is that, you know, for years and years, we're seeing the sort of unintended consequences of introducing market dynamics into a market that had been largely subsidized and manipulated by the NCAA for years, right? It's a great way so, of putting it. Title IX, 50-year-old piece of legislation, has done a lot to create opportunities, particularly for women, but it's it's forced universities to subsidize a lot of women's programs. And largely, I think that's a great thing. It's, it's created a lot of opportunities for a lot of people that in a strictly market-driven dynamic would not have had those opportunities to compete. Layer on top of this is sort of a media push to promote women's athletics for the sake of women's athletics. And I think that's a good thing largely too. For sure. But NIL introduces a market dynamic into this area. And so what we're seeing is the market forces are rewarding things other than competitive ability. Absolutely. They are rewarding 
social media influence. That's social right. media influence is driven largely by your attractiveness, right? Like For you look sure. at the top NIL deals in college sports, across all college sports, and it's mostly women, yep. and it's mostly very attractive women, often in gymnastics, which is a very low revenue sport. Totally. These Cavendier twins, you know, th- they fit that category as well. And, you know, the viewership of live sports in general, even women's live sports, is still mostly men. Even though, like, ESPN and these and Fox and all these other media entities are trying to create on-ramps to expand the marketplace with more female viewership. But at the end of the day, this is like, we try to manipulate and control this market for some benevolent reasons, but we introduce an open market dynamic and we see it descend to kind of sex selling, for lack of a better phrase. Olivia Dunn is perhaps the best example yeah. of this. Olivia Dunn's the gymnast at, at LSU. She has, I believe, one of the only, if not the only, million-dollar NIL deals for a female and maybe of any college athlete. Um, Olivia Dunn's very attractive. I don't really know how many people are, are... I don't know. I don't know how to say this. I guess what I'm saying is that there, then you get into the dark side of the way that the algorithms for social media work, sure. what they present to people, and uh, it, it just gets into the weeds all the way, and I, I just don't know. On one hand, if if you're going to make money off of your image, no matter what your image is, mm-hmm. as an athlete, as a person, as a female, at whatever, all the power to you. On the other hand, though, I do wor- worry about this, like taking away from the the accomplishments of these, especially young ladies, as athletes themselves. Right? It, it gets into the weird weeds of exploitation, and, and I don't know. I don't know where I stand. I don't know how to compartmentalize all. Yeah, this. it gets creepy really fast. I mean. The market will reward whatever the market rewards. But when we're talking about um, young athletes, young athletes enrolled at universities um, and the value systems that universities purportedly promote, it it gets kind of murky. At the same time, I don't want to roll, I don't want to just attribute all of this to a, a women's only problem. Sure. I mean, male athletes, athletes of all genders, there's a correlation between success and attractiveness, right? Like Michael Jordan probably wouldn't have been the the the, the multi-market media superstar that he was had he not been such a good-looking dude. It's true, man. He's got million-dollar smile. That's been uh, Michael Jordan's talent sold a lot of sneakers. It, how handsome he is sold a lot of sneakers. It really did. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a real part of this. And at the end of the day, it's entertainment. We're placing a dollar value on the entertainment value, you know, on the entertainment experience. There's a totality of that experience. Does it include dimensions that the NCAA or you know certain social activists might not want to be rewarded, like physical attractiveness? Yes, it does reward that stuff. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. There's probably a range of opinions around that, but the market thinks it's a good thing, and the market is driving dollars in that direction. It's going to be so interesting to see where this goes. I think the way you summed it up though, there, though, where there was sort of this phenomenon and th- there's this thing going on with money in college athletics for a very long time. Yeah. And then you introduce regulations to an already existing market. It's going to be weird for a while. Well, and, and I think, too, like all the talk we've had about NIL is like usually driven by... Big time college football players, right? Yep. yep. 
and, and thinking of like these guys are the NCAA is trying to hang on to as much control as they want yes. or as they can. And there's been like all this talk about the tip of the spear money athletes. I don't think anybody in this space really anticipated that, you know, a five foot women's gymnast from LSU would be making more money than anybody else in this space. Um, Take a step back. It was probably pretty predictable. Sure. We really thought about it, but the policies were not constructed with this kind of outcome in mind. And market dynamics tend to create, you know, tend to reveal um, incentives and preferences that we might not have um, accurately assessed in the beginning. The Business Angle with Justin Angle down here at Studio 49 at the Gallagher Business Building on the University of Montana campus, presented by Blackfoot Communications. Last point on that is that. I think that there's going to be a, an evolution here, too, where influence and the ability to message is going to overtake the prestige of the endorser, so mm. to speak, right? Like right now, the way that things have sort of gone, even in small markets like Missoula and Bozeman, has been the most popular athlete, you know, the Tommy Malott of the world, the Junior Bergen of the world, is the guy that's getting the stuff. From somebody that does marketing for a living... I think you got to go one cut deeper than that and find the person that could message your stuff the sure. best, right? Yeah. So I wonder then if we uh, add the element of just personality, the element of marketability, the, the element of the ability to talk uh, moving forward. I think that's going to be an interesting one. One last thing I want to get to because I know you got to go. Uh, the Grizzly Cross team won against St. Thomas, who was like the, the juggernaut Goliath of MCLA, Men's uh, Collegiate Lacrosse Association yeah. Division Two. They won six out of the last nine national championships. They were the number one team in the country. Grizz beat them 10 to eight this last week. And then the Grizz ascend to number one in the country in the MCLA Division Two poll. It's kind of cool. It's a pretty big deal. I mean, yeah. what do you what do you think of this? Just in terms of uh, sort of the exposure of the university, I, I, I think it's great. I mean, we've talked we talked about the University of Montana hockey team, yeah. and, and kind of what that's done and the, the cool experience it's created. Um, it's a great deal for the university, right? Because it's not a it's not a varsity sport. Totally. So they don't have to support all this infrastructure, and they they get a lot of kids from out of state. Montana uh, Montana is not a big lacrosse state. Um, So we recruit a lot of kids from out of state. That's great for our enrollment. That's great for our tuition revenue. Um, It's probably unfortunate. I mean, our colleague Tucker Sargent would probably say like, hey, it's a raw deal for him. Um, You know, because he's not a division one coach at the University of Montana, but it's a lot of upside for the university. That's for sure. And those kids are having a great experience too. They're having a great experience. And, you know, it's funded very much like a varsity sport. They're committing like a varsity sport in terms of the time. And it's sort of just a circumstantial thing in terms of what level they play because there's just only, I think, 51 Division One lacrosse yeah. teams in the yeah. country. So it, it, to be Division Two, you're still playing at a very high level. Sure. And most of the guys have played lacrosse their whole lives and, and played at a very high level. So uh, I just I think it's very cool. And uh, I think they've done a great job working hand-in-hand with the university as Absolutely. well. I think it's an example for all. I mean, Tucker sold that to President Bodner often saying, hey, you know, we have this sport that, you know, we're going to use a little bit of the Grizz logo and things like that, but we're also going to bring you... 20, 25 kids that are good, upstanding students that are paying out-of-state tuition and that are also participating in activities. And it's driving community engagement. That's I mean, right. You go That's to those right. We're talking about games, exactly. you go to the lacrosse games, and people are out, people that might not have explicit connections to the university, they're out cheering it on because it's a great viewer experience. It's a great night out. No, I was now ESPN Radio, the business angle with Justin Angle. Do this every couple of weeks, every other week uh, here on your radio dial. 
It's presented by Blackfoot Communications. Visit goblackfoot.com to find out more about how Blackfoot can help you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, I don't think I said anything that would get me fired, but maybe we'll see how, <laughs> we'll see how it goes tomorrow. <laughs> Gotta love it. See you, see you soon. See ya.